Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. I've since joined the Australian National University, where I've established the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. My guest for this segment is Angela Zhang. She's an associate professor at the director of the Centre for Chinese Law at the University of Hong Kong. Angela is also author of the excellent book, Chinese Antitrust Exceptionalism, How the Rise of China Challenges Global Regulation. Angela, welcome to Talking Tech Policy. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure to be here. Oh, we're very pleased that you're able to join us. And I'm also very excited because we're going to do something a little bit different with this podcast. We're going to do our first speed chat. So in this segment, we're going to uh, send a bunch of rapid fire questions and answers to Angela. Angela, I'm going to challenge you to do something that is very difficult, which is to keep the answers to each of these questions to one to two minutes. Uh, I can see you sort of grimacing there. Well done. But really, the point of this is because we want to extract as much of your expertise as possible for our listeners. Are you up for that challenge? Yes. Okay, brilliant. I'll do my best. (laughs) So question one, as you describe in your book, you were born and raised in mainland China. You received your first degree from Peking University and then you studied America, practiced law in New York, London, Brussels, you've taught at King's College in London and you're now uh, enjoying academic life uh, in Hong Kong. So you have had a pretty unique opportunity to study China from both the inside and the outside. So the first question we have for you is what is one common misperception that Chinese people people tend to have of Americans or Westerners more broadly, and one common misperception that Westerners have of Chinese that you would most like to dispel? Well, this is a really good question. I think one common misconception that the Chinese people have about America and other Western countries is that the United States or the West in general is in decline, and they have inferior governance system than China. And Chinese people have had a lot of government propaganda, particularly during the COVID outbreak, about how China is superior than other Western democracies in terms of governance. Look how we were successful in controlling um, the COVID outbreak, where uh, you know other countries were struggling. And it's obviously true that uh, democracies is not perfect; it does have many of its problems. But I think. It's also important to recognize that it's a resilience and its strength in dealing with the setbacks. And you see Western countries are now managing the COVID situation pretty well, mm. whereas now China did face very serious governance challenge with controlling the outbreak. You know, things that's happening in Shanghai, it's probably posing the most difficult challenge to uh, the Xi administration at the moment. And I think the misconception that Westerners have about China 
tends to be that China is a monolithic regime where the government is mostly using authoritarian and repressive means to rule and govern its people. And that's not true because performance legitimacy do matters a lot for the survival of the Communist Party. So just like other governments in the world, I mean, Chinese government do face very serious challenge and they do need to work really, really hard to serve its own people. All right. Question two for you. One of the things I love about your book is that you open and close it with personal stories. And in one of those stories, you explain how you describe to your son what your book is about. We're going to dive into the nitty gritty in a minute, but perhaps as a soft entry point into our discussion, can you recount that story and perhaps also tell us a little bit about how that story framed the very excellent cover image on your book? Thank you so much for asking this question. My son will love to hear this part of the, <laughs> of the podcast. And he, he's been reading the, the preface of my book again and again since it was published. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> so I wrote the preface of the book actually at the end when I almost finished the whole book project. That was like the most intense period, the lockdown in Hong Kong in back in 2020. And my son had no school at that time. And by the way, he had no school right now, <laughs> two years right now. And I have to find something to keep him busy. And, and when my publisher asked me to think about a book cover, I delegated this project to him. And uh, my son was five years old at that time. And he it was really hard for him to understand what 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 I mean by antitrust. He has absolutely no clue. So I tell him a story about my book as follows. So basically you can imagine there are, this is a story about three children. And initially there were two kids on the playground, one called America, the other called Europe. And then suddenly there was a new kid called China that came along and wanted to join the game. But China was not familiar with the rules and played according to a different set of rules, which annoyed the other two kids. So America and Europe decided to square it up to China. Um, so that was, I hope, I mean, that described the, the project to Alan. And, and also, fundamentally, although my book focused on antitrust, I want the reader to see this is ultimately a book about globalization. And antitrust is only a lens through which we can see the conflict between China and the Western liberal democracies. And so, but eventually my book publisher think it's just too weird to have three children uh, to be my book cover. <laughs> <laughs> so I abandoned this idea and just have three chess figures, uh, you know, each representing uh, these three players mm. on the chessboard. And am I right that one of them, so there's the two, the US and the EU uh, as chess figures and then uh, China as a go piece, is that correct? Yeah, China is, that is the Chinese chess figure. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's that also explains, you know, China play according to the Chinese chess rules, whereas Europe and America play according to their own, you know, international chess rules. So they're playing a different game here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really wonderful visual representation of the thesis of your book. So uh, congratulations to your son for, for helping you to get to that point. It's fabulous. Thank you. Delving more into, uh, I guess, some of the, the substance of it, this is a very simple question, but it has a complex answer, I'm sure. Tech war and trade war, can we actually distinguish between these two terms anymore? 
You asked a very good question. I can see why people think that these two things are kind of interchangeable at the moment because there's so many overlaps between them. And tag war does lie at the heart of the Sino-US rivalry at the moment. But I also think there are differences between tag war and trade war. For the most part, if we look at the phase one trade deal that was struck between America and China, that deal didn't really just address tag issues. He also trying to address many other problems as pointed out by the, the Trump administration, like things like trade imbalances. Mm. And that's why, you know, China is committed was committed to buy a lot of US goods, particularly the agricultural products, right? And so far the tariffs that, that were imposed by the Trump administration, they largely remain in place. And most of most of these tariffs were not tech related. But one of the fundamental reasons alleged by Trump why they want to impose these uh, tariffs on, on Chinese goods is because of forced technology transfer mm. uh, from the Chinese side and, and, and the fact that China did not do enough to protect the intellectual property of U.S. companies in China. So you can see, you know, the United States is leveraging its trade policy to help it achieve more competitive advantage or negotiating uh, leverage when it comes to tech policy. So trade war then is a means to engage in tech war with China. And to carry that sentiment through, in the context of what you refer to as the Sino-US tech war, you've done some really interesting work applying game theory, and in particular, the Falk theorem to China's tit-for-tat approach in response to the US. And what I found the most interesting about your application of the game theory is that in the short term, the only way to reach equilibrium is for the US and China to adopt a cooperative approach, which you know, frankly, is not something that we see a lot of at the moment. But in the long run, an aggressive US policy countered by strong Chinese responses in your application of game theory also leads to equilibrium. Can you talk us through how you get to that point? Because I think it's actually really interesting in terms of people seeing this, this strong response as being a negative thing as opposed to that it can actually help lead to equilibrium. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a little bit counterintuitive. Mm. Let me first tell you a story back in the most intense period of the trade war in 2018, when President Xi met a delegate of Western executives uh, during a meeting in Beijing. He said that, you know, in the West, you have the notion that if someone hits you on the left cheek, you turn the other cheek. Uh, but in our culture, we punch back. Right. Mm. I mean, and let me try to explain what he means by that. I mean, that's the classic take for tack. The reason is because if you don't retaliate, you will be perceived as weak and which might invite more aggression from your opponent. So striking back is in fact a way to trying to maintain and promote peace between countries. And that's the reason why, you know, we see countries want to keep nuclear weapons because that is one of the way to deter a hot war between nations. And, and that's how, you know, the Soviet and America was able to keep peace with each other despite the, the Cold War, you know, for so many years. And we have observed, what we observe in the legal field is that since the trade war in 2018, the United States and China have engaged in a very intense legal war with each other where you see the U.S. has imposed a lot of sanctions uh, on Chinese companies, and China have retaliated, also using various legal weapons. 
So that's how I describe this tech for tech strategy in my book. And and for those of you who are interested in this, I really would uh, encourage you to read that chapter in the book because you set it out in terms of numerically uh, proving how that those two strong responses uh, can re- lead to equilibrium. And I think it's really worth a read for those who are interested in game theory. Next question, and you've referred to some of the legal tools that people use, uh, that the US and China have used to respond to each other. One of the key legal tools that China has used is the anti-monopoly law. In August 2020, when you wrote your book, you predicted that China's anti-monopoly law would only be used to fight a limited war with the US rather than be used as a weapon of mass retaliation. Can you explain a little bit about what the law is and how it's been used in the international context, and if your prediction holds two years later. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So the anti-monopoly law is China's antitrust law. It's a very powerful tool for the Chinese government because the law allows the government to exert long-arm jurisdiction, like it can exert extraterritorial jurisdiction, just like what America did to you know some of the Chinese tech companies like Huawei and ZTE when it applied those sanction laws on those companies. Um, America had a lot of other laws that allowed to exert long-arm jurisdiction, like the Foreign Anti-Corruption Act also allowed the U.S. government to reach uh, overseas foreign companies and punish foreign executives. And China, after being woken up by the trade war and, and also the setbacks it faced in Huawei and ZTE case, have decided to strike back by flexing its own regulatory muscles. And, it, and then it identified antitrust as a very useful tool because it allows the Chinese government to hold up some of the the largest mergers of foreign multinational companies, right? Because these companies, uh, very often, because they have you know significant presence in China, they sell sales to China, they need to obtain regulatory approval from the Chinese authority before they proceed with a very large international uh, merger transaction. So antitrust allow Chinese government to kind of fight a limited war with America to help China to obtain more bargaining leverage. But I would say, and I did predict it at that time, that I don't think China will apply this law as a weapon of mass retaliation because that was that will be a very self-destructive move because at this point, China still rely very heavily on foreign capital and including U.S. investment to boost its own economy. We're still setting a 5.5% growth rate mm-hmm. target for this year. China cannot afford you know, for a, a decoupling with the West and with the United States. And by the way, China is also counting on Wall Street to, to lobby for China to drop some of the sanctions against Chinese tech firms, right? I mean, so at this point, at least, I would say that China, the Chinese government and the leadership is acutely aware that economic decoupling is not an option for China. It will not serve China's best interests. So, so that's why I predict that they will not use um, antitrust as a weapon of mass retaliation because of the potential consequences that it might create. 
that's a really comprehensive but quick overview of the use of the anti-monopoly law internationally. I'd like to just pivot very briefly and look at it in the context of domestic application. Um, many of our listeners will remember when uh, the Ant Group listing was pulled sort of three days before it was about to begin trading and China then launched an antitrust investigation into the Alibaba Group, which was the tech giant's Ant Group affiliate. Did you expect China to use the anti-monopoly law as aggressively domestically as it has? And how does China's use of this law domestically differ from the way that uh, the US perhaps is looking at antitrust with respect to its big tech platforms? China is definitely uh, very aggressive in applying its antitrust law towards its own companies. Just last year, China imposed a $2.8 billion fine. Mm. Um, this is the largest fine um, China had ever, ever imposed on any company on Alibaba. And, and then another $500 million fine uh, on Meituan, which is the largest uh, food delivery company in China for antitrust violations. Mm. So you see antitrust is not only a very powerful tool to deter foreign sanctions, but also to discipline its own domestic tech giants. And obviously China is not unique in its demand to regulate tech firms um, once the company have grown to have such accumulate so much data and have so much influence, um, there is a big demand for government to uh, regulate them. And I actually think that China faced greater demand to regulate its own tech firms because of China's unique institutional environment. What differs China from other countries, though, is not its demand, but rather how it regulates, mm. more concretely in terms of how it executes the policy. And you see you know, in China, Chinese agencies can move forward very quickly with almost no resistance from tech firms, right? I mean, cases against Alibaba, cases uh, Meituan, both cases uh, with record fines were completed within six months, which would be unimaginable in other jurisdictions like the United States, right? And, and both companies, you know, they quickly see to the agency's demand and vow with compliance and thank the regulator, right? I mean, you don't have that kind of dynamic in a Western uh, country, right? I mean, so where you see that companies like Google is finding now and tool uh, with, with the regulatory authority. Mm, yeah, it's a dynamic that I think many Australian regulatory authorities would be envious of, but also uh, it comes at a cost, of course. Pivoting now to look at uh, China's new personal information protection law. This was launched last year. In part, it's, it's modelled on the GDPR, although you know there are significant privacy and security concerns that have been raised in relation to it. My question in, rela in relation to this is, how that personal information protection law has impacted on business operations. So when the GDPR was first introduced in Europe, it had quite a significant impact on uh, business operations. I'm wondering if we've seen the same thing in China and what the reaction has been. China's personal information protection law is inspired and modeled after the GDPR. But so far, it is still early days that China um, just adopted the, the personal information protection law in November last year. So it's been only about six months <laughs> since, mm. since the promulgation of the new law. And China is in the process of rolling out some of the detailed implementation guidelines. But recently, the 
the vice premier of China, Liu He, convened a meeting and sent a very strong signal that China will improve transparency with its tax regulation. And it also sent uh, some signals that maybe the tax regulation might be tapering off given the slowdown of the Chinese economy. The bigger priority is to you know, maintain uh, economic and social stability. Right? So that might slow down some of the regulatory process because unlike before, you know, things move forward very quickly, particularly during the previous uh, 16 to 17 months. So it's a bit difficult to tell at this stage how the law has affected business operations. But this law, unlike previous law that we saw before, has real teeth because the penalty for violation mm-hmm. is very high, up to 5% of the firm's turnover, the revenue in the previous year, right? I mean, that's even tougher than the GDPR, which is up to 4% of a firm's turnover. And and that does give the regulatory authority, you know, very strong punitive power to punish companies. And I think companies would take it very seriously. And I'm pretty sure all the big tech companies have invested a lot to improve their corporate compliance because of the sanction, um, the penalty consequences could be very, very serious under the new law. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone I'm talking to is is watching it very closely uh, in terms of the impact that it's having, but also the way that it's shaping behaviour as well. We'll certainly talk more about that in future episodes of the podcast. All right. The last substantive question that we have for you is the impact of the change of US administration. So how has China's strategy evolved in the last 12 months? And has the change in US administration changed things fundamentally when we're looking at the concept of uh, tech regulation and the relationship between the US and China? I don't think the new administration has fundamentally changed any of the fundamentals, perhaps just with a better, more civilized rhetoric when engaging with China. <laughs> but overall, it's very clear the US is heading towards um, a containment strategy. And China, in return, has doubled down and investing a lot in hardcore technology, even including this tech campaign, uh, tech law enforcement campaign we were just talking about. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the consequences from this um, law enforcement campaign is that the big tech companies, being companies like Alibaba, Meituan, and Tencent, these are the consumer internet businesses, will be more incentivized to invest in hardcore technology because that will make themselves more aligned with the national agenda to improve the competitiveness of China uh, vis-a-vis the United States. So if anything, you know, I would see China is investing more, is kind of gathering a hold of society efforts and align the interests of the private firms and the government to all invest uh, very hard in improving its technological prowess, although it might still take years before China can really catch up. But China is also heading towards that direction. And also China continued to take the defense strategy. China promulgated the anti-sanction law last year. So far, there haven't been uh, any big cases. Because I think from China's standpoint, just similar to the antitrust story we just talked about, in the best case scenario, China does not really want to inflict any pain on a Western company. Because in the best case scenario, China would just hope simply by flexing its regulatory muscle, that's enough Mm. to deter 
the U.S. aggression. So it doesn't really need to engage in conflict because when it, when it is go down that path, it is a self-destructive move. And at this stage, China does not want any decoupling. It still want investment. It still want cooperation because it understand this is it serves China's best interests. Mm. Thank you. I think it's a really thought-provoking takeout for, for everyone to think about in terms of China's strong responses rather than being an attempt of destruction, but actually an attempt of deter- deterrence and bringing us back to that point of equilibrium, which I'm sure that some of our listeners um, would take issue with, but, but I think it's a really interesting perspective. And one of the things that I really love about all of your work, Angela, is that you, you know, some people might describe you as being equally impartial. Uh, to the US and China, I actually would probably describe it as you being equally harsh against both the US and China. And you you really do bring a different way of looking at things, which I find incredibly valuable. To wrap up, um, the last question we always ask our guests is what books or podcasts, Twitter articles, uh, do you have key recommendations for people who want to learn more about these issues? And obviously, I recommend your book, which is really, despite the fact that it's a heavy topic, it's exceptionally well written and easy to read. Congratulations on that. That's no mean feat to make that kind of topic accessible and something that someone like me continues to read beyond a few pages. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Uh, When I was writing this book, I really tried very hard to make this book accessible because Mm. I want it to appeal to a much broader audience than those interested in antitrust because eventually I want to see people to see this book as a book about globalization. And I'm a product of globalization and I advocate for globalization and I do want to promote peace between nations. And I I hope the audience can see my goal uh, when when they finish this book. Um, As to the recommendation, if you're interested in Chinese tech policy, particularly the recent dramatic reverse of the government policy in regulating its domestic tech giants. Um, I can do some shameless promotion here about my recent article. It's called um, Agility Over Stability, China's Great Reversal in Regulating the Platform Economy, uh, which will soon be published by Harvard International Law Journal, but it's also available on SSRN. And and that is like a 225,000 word uh, long law, law review piece where I try my best to describe what had happened in the past 17 months regard to the dramatic um, shift of the government's attitude in regulating the platform economy in China. Thank you. We'll put a link to that uh, in the pod notes, and it's certainly one that I would love to read as well. And just to end on that note where you're talking about the the objective being um, peace between nations, and I think the only way we will achieve that kind of peace and equilibrium that we've been talking about is if nations are actually listening to each other, and conversations like this really help us to be able to build that understanding and and understand the different perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to uh, working with you and your centre as our our centre here at the Tech Policy Design Centre expands as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate that. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Thanks also to Ben Gowdy for his research and post-production support. We would be most grateful if you could subscribe, rate the pod, leave us a review, or perhaps give us a shout out on social media or around the water cooler at work. All of these things help us to get the word out and the more interest we have, the better we can make the podcast. Please also do let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to cover in future episodes. 
Thank you for listening. And until next time, get in touch and get involved.